The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, October the 4th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Later on, we're going to be joined by our correspondent, Mark Paul, who is at the Conservative Party conference in Manchester. But first, it is only six days to Finance Minister Michael McGrath's first budget, and political reporter Jack Horgan-Jones is here to read the tea leaves. Jack, first, uh, the economic tea leaves are not looking quite as optimistic right now. Very much so, yeah. There's been a, a series of fairly dire warnings over the last kind of, I suppose you could stretch it back a few months, but they've gathered pace over the last week or so, culminating in this scare at budget time that we feature on our front page today in Wednesday's Irish Times, which combines a warning on economic growth from the Economic and Social Research Institute with uh, the latest in a series of returns on the Exchequer from the Department of Finance. Uh, so the ESRI is basically saying that economic growth is going to slow to the point where they're now expecting a technical recession, so GDP to be in uh, in, in negative territory for two quarters in a row. Um, that won't feature as as a real-life, felt-on-the-ground, tangible recession for people because, because of... Because of the weirdness of what Paul Krugman famously called our leprechaun economy, where gross domestic product doesn't actually reflect necessarily what's economically happening in the country. Correct. You have this kind of decoupling between GDP and the real economy here. So the real economy here, as, as measured by GNI Star, is set to continue to grow, albeit at a, at a less pronounced rate. But the, 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 the effect, I suppose, the mental effect of being in a technical recession dovetails with these other warnings from the Department of Finance, which is effectively saying that the, the issue or the event that they've been warning us about for so long, which is a slowdown in corporation tax receipts, has, is now happening. So there's two uh, two months in a row where uh, corporation tax has, has undershot last year and also underperformed expectations. And the sense is now that it will undershoot the level forecast for for this year. So while still growing, growing at a dramatically uh, less pronounced rate. So when we had Pascal Donoghue in a few weeks ago, and that the August numbers had come through, and he had noted mm-hmm. those because there was a big, big slump in the in the August numbers compared year, year on year. Uh, he said it was too early to say yeah. in terms of what that actually meant. But now we've got we've got two months of this plus we have these these ASRI projections. So. Yeah, don't call it a trend yet, but mm. it does feel like something approaching a trend. And then November is a big month for corporation tax receipts, so there'll be a lot of lot, lot of focus on that. But I suppose for the purposes of this conversation, what it is is kind of solidifying the mood music ahead of the budget as being uh, you know a mood of caution, one of prudence as well. And this goes hand in hand with the utterances from both Pascal Donoghue and Minister of Finance Michael McGrath over the last few weeks who have just been foregrounding risk, you know, talking down the economy to paraphrase uh, paraphrase Bertie Ahern um, and just basically, you know, warning that there may, be, there may be a disconnect between the budget and the root health of the exchequer. Which so is does this to some extent to. suit the two amigos that they've been busy yeah. putting the table and the chair up against the door and the rest of their cabinet colleagues are trying to push through the door and this helps them because it helps their argument. 
Yeah, because it frames the whole the whole discussion. And if you're if you're going in, um, I remember someone once observed to me that in these kind of meetings, it's the person with the data, it's the person with the spreadsheet who holds the whip hand. And if you're able to point to uh, a data set that supports your bargaining position, automatically you're strengthened. And so, in within the narrow context of budgetary negotiations, that is that that's the framework that that, that they're meeting well, their cabinet colleagues. Be. Yeah, as it should be. And then it's also, I suppose, a, a more kind of serious issue in the, in the medium term that I think we'll see this kind of question of the sustainability or the volatility of corporation tax receipts kind of move back into the back into the center of Irish politics and become more of uh, more of a kind of constant uh, frame for the day-to-day world but for the purposes of for the purpose of this budget it sets the tone early and often that yes the exchequers are washed with cash but we have to be prudent, we have to be future-proofing. And I mean, there was another report this morning um, featured at length on Morning Ireland, the chief economist of uh, IFAC, uh, the Irish Fiscal Advisory uh, Council, talking about you know the need to put money aside and do very extensive future planning to provide for things like uh, funding climate change. I mean, I don't know if, if you heard the the interview, but you know the, the figures he was, talk- he, was, he was talking about were absolutely astronomical, eye-popping sums, hundreds of billions set aside basically to pay off farmers and to make up for the, the shortfall in, in VRT receipts and all these kind of nasty things that are coming down the tracks before the end of the decade and into, and into the 2030s. And then you have the problem of demographics and all the rest of it, all of which would suggest, you know, now is the time to put money aside for for the long term as opposed to spend it Plus in the IFAC are saying don't overheat the economy. IFAC are saying don't overheat the economy. They've been saying that early and often well into this budget cycle. Now, to an extent, they've been ignored because they, their, their plea was not to breach this 5% spending rule that the government set itself. They breached it last year. They're going to breach it this year again. So, you know, it all, it all kind of makes for a fairly kind of dour mood heading into the budget and the reports that we're getting out of the bilateral meetings between the spending ministers and the and the the line ministers, the other cabinet ministers, are that you know there's a lot of no's going on. There's a lot of get your house in order. There's not a lot of things being tied down and kind of shot through. All of this is the issue of the health overspend. Uh, you know, 1.1 billion at least, likely rising to more than that. Um, will that have to form part of you know the base level, the the level of providing the existing level of service for for next year in the Department of Health? And is that going to eat up any kind of excess that might be available for other measures? Now, against that, I think you do have to bear in mind that this is still going to be an expansionary budget. You know, you're looking at 6.3 billion between uh, new spending measures and, and and taxation measures, and then a yet to be determined set of once-off measures. Pat Lee, our political editor, was reported during the week that he expects the overall size of the budget package to be around 10 billion. Now, if you look at that, that suggests once-off measures in the region of 3, 3.5 billion euros. That's not a million miles away from what we had last year. So all those things, supports for energy bills, various other... Um, yeah, various double Simon welfare Harris giving payments. money to people for their children's university yeah, fees, yeah. all that kind of stuff. You, you name it, it or some version of it is likely to kind of be included in the once-off packages. But it'll be at a less generous level than last year. So while people will get energy credits, for example, we expect it to come at a reduced level or a reduced frequency. Um, there's been a lot of discussion around things like childcare cuts. You know, the, the the political promise that was made last year was to deliver 50%, 50% cut over two budgets. They did 25% last year. There's a big question mark over whether they'll do 25% this year. So Con- Controversial issues like uh, mortgage interest relief. 
going to be very like small, that. I think. Like, I mean, the, the, like the sense that there's going to be a broad strokes measure on mortgage interest relief, you know, that will be felt by households up and down the country whether they need it or not. I mean, that is anathema to the Department of Finance at the best of times. And they're obviously bullocked by this uh, bad mood music that we talked about already. So I think you get something very small, targeted through the welfare system, not through the taxation system. So I think that overall, when you take a step back from it, it's, uh, you know, they can't be, they can't plead poverty. And I think that there will be a significant amount of money spent. I don't think that the the, the change or the, the the negative kind of sentiment around the economy and the corporation tax receipts is enough to justify a pulling up of the budgetary handbrake or anything like that. The, the shape and size of the budget is going to be as, as expected. But I think in the context of last year's budget, it's not going to feel as generous. Uh, it's going to be kind of hinged on the suggestion that the cost of living crisis has alleviated a little bit. I'm not sure whether households will kind of buy that. And I think that the risk is that, and I was talking to Minister about this only last night, the risk is that within that context, then your potential for a kind of budgetary landmine uh, is is heightened. So you get some measure wrong, you miscalibrate it or you judge it wrongly or you disappoint people. And even though it's a, it's a quote unquote giveaway, even though it's a, a once off or an increase, the overall tone and feeling of it is one of, is one of disappointment uh, in the context of being influenced by this kind of parsimony and people will then be uh, be questioning whether that, that parsimony or that kind of watchfulness, that caution, that prudence was the right way to to approach things. So I think that it's a, it's a much more finely balanced budget than last year. And there it's must a, be a concern among the, the, the three government parties as well, isn't it? They're not exactly, you know, setting the polls on fire at the moment. You know, looking back a few months, there, there must have been at least some hope among some of the, the rank and file of the parties that, you know, they'd get a sugar rush out of the budget. There'd be a bit of a boost. You know, the economy's going well, whereas mm. this is going to be much more... Sure. Well there, well, there always is. You know, I mean, backbenchers always want to turn the afterburners on come budget time. I mean, that's that's just the nature of it. They want to um, show constituents that government is making decisions in their interests and that there's a tangible effect uh, for that. So, I mean, that 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 that's not that's not surprising. I think that the the problem is that it kind of comes against this midlife to kind of later part of the cycle ennui of of being in government. You know, like the the problems of being in coalition or being in government for, for several years start to kind of build up and, and calcify. And I was writing about this a little bit earlier in the year. You know, heading into previous winters, this government faced these kind of novel and, and dramatic crises, whether it was, you know, the meaningful Christmas or the Omicron and, and Delta waves of 21, 22, or the, the, the cost of living crisis last year. Um, this year you have, as, as we've already discussed, the kind of door backdrop um, but then the prospect of industrial unrest, the barristers and the guards engaging in industrial action this week, um, the Section 38 and Section 39 organisations due to due to strike in the next few weeks as well. All these kind of things that just kind of corrode any sense that there's momentum there or that the government is going to kind of generate that kind of escape velocity that it would like to heading into what is likely to be an election cycle of, of, of 18 months taking in three elections. And as you say yourself, the polling is is it's grand, you know. I mean they're not they're not sliding in the polls necessarily, but it's it's fairly moribund as well, you know, like there's been no no real change in the overall trend since I mean the the the, the most meaningful change we saw was probably last summer where Sinn Fein peaked and plateaued, and that's still the case. I mean everyone's just kind of ticking along at the same level. The polls are really not that different than they have been for the last eighteen months or more, are they? Precisely, yeah. Mm. So I mean like whether whether there is going to be 
something that changes the fort, the polling fortunes of the government? I mean, you would have to say that, you know, last year they threw 11 billion at it and there was no kind of demonstrable change in, in the polling. So if they're throwing less than that, you'd have to presume the same is the case. And then, you know, this this issue of landmines, this issue of, of you know, rolling series of strikes, all of which, again, erode the kind of sense that the, that the government is uh, a good custodian of public services, public service provision, all these kind of things, and herald this, you know, oft-invoked... Uh, prospect of, a, is it going to be a winter of discontent for the government? I doubt it's going to be disastrous. You know, I don't think there's going to be a cataclysmic row that brings down the coalition or anything like that. I don't think there's going to be legions of taxpayers marching in the street demanding a change of government. But like, when it comes to those key events that, that can start to generate that momentum, generate a sense of self-belief, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't see those either for the coalition. That's, that's, that's a boon to the opposition. Thanks for that, Jack. We'll be speaking about more government on We with Mark Paul after the break. Mark Paul, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Glad to be here, Hugh. Nice to chat. You're in Manchester. It's an hour or so after Rishi Sunak delivered his leader's speech to the Conservative Party conference. How did it go? Well, the speech was, I suppose, politely received. It was very Rishi Sunak. It was competently delivered. It was full of sensible policy decisions, I suppose, if you come from a Conservative background. It was... You know, there was a couple of things that were not so sensible in it. What it lacked, I think, was a little bit of emotion. So again, it was very Rishi Sunak. Um, but the most interesting thing about the speech, I think, is the fact that Rishi Sunak has attempted, after 13 years of Tory rule, to cast himself as the agent of change. And this is a real uh, difficult one to pull off when your government has been running the country for over a decade. I was j- just came from the press centre and, and, and I heard a very good line, which I, which I won't try and pass off as my own, but it was, um, it was the Nick Robinson from BBC was sitting across the desk from me and I heard coin a phrase he said uh, it's time for change stick with the Tories and that's effectively the message that uh, that came through um, yeah from it, it, it was really it was really quite surreal he kind of he talked about Keir Starmer as the representative of the same old thing that we've had for the for the last hmm. 30 years but as you say they've been in power for 30, 30 in fact they've been in power for 17 of the 30 years he described under I think probably about five or six different uh, Tory prime ministers yeah yeah, yeah, I think when he tries to cast himself as the agent of change, I think what he's saying is that there has been a 30-year consensus of ducking tough decisions in Britain. Um, and he's trying to portray himself as the guy who will take the tough decisions. I mean, the first, in his mind, tough decision that he took was to axe the, the Birmingham to Manchester leg of HS2, which is a high-speed rail link that's been uh, in planning since, since about 2010 or 2009. Um, and that frees up £36 billion, which, of course, he can lavish on other regional transport projects in the run-up to the next election. The next big tough decision that he took, and and I have to say this one wasn't, I don't think it went down that well in the hall, was he's effectively banned smoking for everybody um, born from 2009 onwards. So he he has, uh, basically what they're going to do is they're going to raise the smoking age every year by one year from people who are age 14 and onwards now. So anybody who is age 14 and onwards now will never be allowed to legally smoke in Britain. The third big decision then that he took was a shake-up of, of the, the, the British uh, secondary education system. Um, so he's effectively scrapped the A-level system um, and, uh, and he's, uh, he's, he's replacing that with a new thing called the Advanced British Standard. So he portrayed himself as the guy who takes the decisions that his predecessors couldn't. In a way, he sort of, that was a kind of a backhanded, dig, I think, at Boris Johnson and certainly at Liz Truss and possibly even at David Cameron. Whether or not this goes down well with voters, I don't know. But it certainly, it, it went down okay, I think, with the Conservatives in the room. But listen, there, there was no punching the air and high-fiving. It certainly wasn't a big emotional speech. 
I mean, those two initiatives are very interesting. We could probably spend a podcast, you know, talking about them. The idea of making smoking illegal for everybody, ultimately, uh, mm. as, as, as time goes on, is interesting. Seems very uh, unconservative in some ways. Uh, it's kind of nanny, nanny statish, but the, be that as it may. And then the, the A-level one is quite interesting. But the thing that's, that was kind of glaringly absent, it seemed to me, was the thing which there'd been a lot of talk at, according to your reports, around some of the fringe events, which is tax cuts. Tories like tax cuts, and there's no tax cuts. There are no tax cuts. Um, Jeremy Hunt, uh, in his uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer speech uh, yesterday, I mean, he, what he effectively said is that, look, you know, I'm, I'm, tax cuts, we all want tax cuts, we're conservatives, but tax cuts are going to have to wait until inflation is stabilised, until the economy is stabilised, and, and, and until Britain can afford it. Um, Liz Truss rolled into town uh, on Monday and she had a big, the Great British Growth Rally, they called it. Um, she was there, Jacob Rees-Mogg was there, Pretty Patel was there, and Nigel Farage was there in the front row at his first Tory conference in over 25 years. Um, and, and, and they were effectively, you know, banging the drum that she's been banging since she left office, which is that, you know, tax cuts are the way to get Britain moving again. Um, but of course, um, 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 Britain, uh, uh, you know, doesn't have uh, uh, the money for tax cuts. Um, it was unfunded tax cuts that brought down Liz Truss's government. And Rishi Sunak and, and, and Jeremy Hunt, um, as his kind of moderate um, 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 chancellor, are determined not to repeat that mistake. Um, um, and they don't have the money for it, so instead they're going to have to try and win the election some other way. Um, so, so, so they're turning to different things. Um, there, there, there's some. You can kind of see the shape of how the Tories are setting themselves up now um, for the next uh, election campaign. They're going to focus very much on the common sense side of things as they see it. Common sense rollback of certain green measures. It's a sort of common sense approach to some culture war issues like the trans debates and so on. You can see they're going to put a big sort of emphasis on being the, the pro-veterans party. They made a big play in that today. And, uh, and then they're, they're really going to put Rishi Sunak front and centre of the campaign as the guy who is capable of making the tough decisions. Another thing that was really noticeable over the course of the whole conference, and particularly in Rishi Sunak's speech, um, and to one extent you would expect them to really go with the, the, the head of the Labour Party, but they really, there was a lot of very highly personalised attacks on Keir Starmer over the four days. And because they see him as the Labour weak point, they see Rishi Sunak as the Conservative strong point, and, and, and that's the way they're going to set themselves up in the campaign to come. Which is interesting because you have two technocratic leaders going up against each other at the next election, neither mm. of whom inspires, you know, great fervour or, or excitement among their among their own parties. So trying mm. to turn it into a personality contest, I don't know, does that work out? Well, I suppose, you know, if you've got two fairly um, mediocre personalities, if your personality is, is, is a little bit less mediocre than the other guy, I suppose maybe that counts as a strength in the long run. Like, you know, Hugh, uh, you know, from observing British politics and, and everyone knows from what we've seen over the last few years that, that, you know, Britain needs to dial down the drama. And, and I think that's the space that Rishi Sunak is pushing himself into, that I'm the guy who doesn't get involved in drama. I end drama. I, I make tough decisions. I make sensible decisions, common sense decisions, which... You know, you can see how at one level that plays into a certain mode of conservative thinking. But, you know, he's not the kind of guy to excite Tories in, in sort of in their blood. Not in the way that Margaret Thatcher could. And not in the way, actually, that Liz Truss, um, for all the criticisms that she gets. But I observed this week, she really does excite grassroots Tory members in their blood. Rishi Sunak didn't do that. I don't think that the reaction to his speech inside the hall was all that great. I think it was quite um, technocratic in its own way. I mean, it's a kind of a sense of, look, they, you know, they wanted a middle manager, they got a middle manager, and that's what they got on Rishi Sunak. And that's the approach that he's taking. He's staying true to himself. And he did make one attempt, I suppose, to humanise himself a little bit. Of course, you know, I mean, of course he's a human being, but he's not a very big guy for personality stuff and for his private life. 
in a surprise introduction, or a, a surprise move, um, his wife, Akshata Murthy, um, she actually introduced him on stage and she, she, she got up and she gave a speech about um, you know how they met and how much they were in love and what he's like sort of uh, in his private life and the fact that he doesn't actually like Emily in Paris despite all the rumours to the contrary and you know that he uh, but that he does like rom-coms all of this kind of colour around him I think that was an attempt um, to strip away some of the black and white um, sort of Goldman Sachs blandness around Rishi Sunak that I think is the one final barrier to making this guy um, um, the centrepiece, the man, the centrepiece of the campaign. Um, so I think we're going to see an awful lot more of his wife in the campaign as well, like Shatter Murty. Um, and uh, and we'll see how that plays out. He did make the point, and I think he had some justification for making this point, you know, that he is the first non-white prime minister mm. of, of, of the United Kingdom. He made the mm. argument, and I think, you know, there is some justification for this too, that, that the United Kingdom is the most successfully multicultural country among Western democracies of which he's evidence mm. and there's plenty of other evidence around as well particularly in the Tory party where nearly all his potential challengers should it come to that are from are from migrant backgrounds and are nearly all women mm. Yes, yes, they are. I mean, the three women who, who, who are most in the fray to replace Rishi Sunak, should, should he get turfed out, should they lose the election, are Priti Patel, who's a, a former Home Secretary, and Suella Braverman, who's the current Home Secretary, and both of those come from ultimately Indian origin, Indian origin, but from Africa, Indian immigrants to Africa who then came to Britain. Um, and then, of course, the third, and the one who I think is possibly in the best position um, to succeed Rishi Sunak if the job becomes available is Kemi Badenoch. She's the daughter of Nigerian immigrants, and she's the business secretary. I thought she gave a very impressive speech actually the other day even if I didn't personally agree with a lot of the content of it and one thing that I really noticed on the speech and I was just chatting to some of the other journalists in the press center here who actually noticed the same thing during his own speech Rishi Sunak um, he, he, he praised Kemi Badenoch from the stage but he, he, he almost deliberately I think chose not to praise Suella Braverman he spoke about the whole immigration issue which is really Suella Braverman's territory it's what she's built her entire um, brand on and he said I will be the one to end small boats he said I will be the one to solve this problem and he didn't mention it at all but when he was talking about everybody else's policy platforms he mentioned um, those cabinet members by name now if you saw Suella Braverman's face uh, while this was happening she was stony faced she was absolutely stony faced and it looked like a slapdown of her and I thought it's very interesting because she She's been portraying herself, um, um, you know, I mean, blatantly as, uh, as somebody who could replace Rishi Sunak. So there's an awful lot of uh, bloodletting, I think, still left in this party to come. And, uh, and if they lose the election, it'll come spurting out. Well, yeah, I was listening to another podcast. I won't name it, but it's hosted by a former Labour spin doctor and a former Tory minister. You might be vaguely aware of it, but it, um, uh, they, neither of them would be in sympathy with the current direction of the of, of the Conservative Party. But they had some pretty um, serious things to say about the way it's being dragged in what they saw as a more populist direction on the kind of culture war issues you mentioned uh, and on migration and on that kind of stuff. And basically they said, their suggestion was that the Tories have to lose the election, have a dark night of the soul, go through essentially what they went through between 1997 and the the mid-noughties in order to come back to their senses. I mean, observing the party at all the various fringe events that you've you've been at over the last couple of days, uh, Mm. is there any Mm. justification to that, do you think, in what you see in the current mood or position of Conservative Party members? Look, I think I think what they were saying in that podcast is right. The party is is drifting a little bit further to the right, even though it seems to be 
the, the thing that has gotten in trouble in the first place. It reminds me a little bit of The Simpsons when Homer Simpson is um, stuck down the bottom of a hole and he decides to dig himself out. And I think that seems to be the direction that they're going. I mean, um, at one fringe event, journalists were, um, were mocked and booed because the deputy chairman uh, of, the, uh, of, of the Tory party was slagging them off on the stage. The biggest event, fringe event of the entire thing was Liz Truss's growth rally, which had Trumpian kind of undertones to it. I mean, it was make Britain grow again was the slogan she chose for the event. I mean, I mean, come on, who's she trying to channel there? So there is this sense, and, 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 and when you talk to people around the party, that they think that even if the Tories lose the next election, that they will still move further to the right. And that's why the candidates that are potential replacements for Rishi Sunak, who are sort of circling around behind them, are all quite right-wing um, politicians. There, 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 there is no... Penny Mordaunt is perhaps the only potential replacement for Rishi Sunak who you could possibly describe as, 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 as a little bit closer to the centre. I suppose that's, that's sort of inevitable, isn't it? We've seen it in previous elections when Labour lost, they tended to swing to the left for a while in the past and the same mm. has happened and the, the same has happened with the Conservatives. But I am also interested in what, you know, the Conservative Party membership look like up close and personal, you know, as you've seen them. And we're, we're told that the party is it's only a fraction of the size that it used to be 30 or 40 years ago. There used to be a couple of million people in the Conservative Party. Now there's only 100,000 or so. We're told they're older than the British population. They're more right-wing, I suppose not surprisingly, than the British population. Uh, do you see a lot of them there or is it mostly corporate backslapping that you get at an event like this? Well, well, look. There's no shortage of corporate backslapping. Although I think I think some of the some of some of the strength has gone out of that backslapping. I expect to see more corporate backslapping actually next week at Labour's conference. To be honest mm. with you, um, but one thing I noticed about the membership roaming around the halls was they all seemed to be either very old or very young. There wasn't actually an awful lot of people in the middle who you know people who people who have jobs. People who have jobs, yeah. But I mean, I mean, look, there was an awful lot of very, very young, very committed and vociferous young Tory activists. You know, a lot of them wearing dicky bows and three-piece suits and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then in the, in the conference hall itself, um, um, you found an awful lot of the older Tory members who, you know, who you know, had a nice soft seat and they could sit down and they could watch the party grandies get up on stage. But the actual people who driving the British economy, people of working age, people with mortgages... They're not as well represented, certainly amongst the, the members who come to, uh, to the conference. Now, of course, that's probably because they're all at work. And I mean, you know, the conference has taken place mainly across a Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday of a working week. Um, but um, the mood was definitely a bit more subdued, I'm told. This is my first Tory conference and it's, it's Rishi Sunak's first Tory conference as leader, possibly his last one as leader. But the mood was quite subdued uh, uh, through the week. I was at last week, uh, last night, I was at the... Um, the, 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 it's supposed to be the party to end all parties in the uh, in the in the conference, which is the Spectator's Champagne Party, the Spectator Magazine's Champagne Party, where all the government members go to. Even that, I thought, was quite subdued. I mean, this party was built up to me as 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 the place to be, and you know where where where, where all the main business of the conference is discussed. And you know, I mean, I just thought it was uh, it, it it was like it was good fun, but 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 there wasn't the crackle and the sense of confidence that you would expect at something like that. Isn't you know? isn't that the way always though when you're told that you're going to go to the greatest party of all time? It's always a bit of a disappointment. <laughs> maybe it is, maybe it is, but I'm still very glad that the spectator invited me. So there and, we go. <laughs> and you, you you'll be off as you say to the to to labour uh, to labour next week. I, I mean, listening to you here and observing it from from over here, rather, it's. Um, I mean, it looks to me like a lot of the strategy that you've just laid out that Rishi Sunak is pursuing is a damage limitation strategy, um, is a way of reducing the, 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 the loss, which is almost inevitable next year. It's not really a way that they can realistically expect to win the election on, is it? Or, or what do you think? 
Well, it was laid out to me um, um, actually last week at the Lib Dems conference by a, 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 a senior former member of the Labour Party. So I know we're, we're mixing in three different parties here. But he, but, but he laid out a strategy to me what he thought the Tories were doing, which is exactly what you said. Um, they're trying to shore up the damage. They know they're going to lose. Um, um, so they're trying to shore up as many seats as they can in the north of the country. Um, um, because, of course, then you have Lib Dems attacking them in the south of the country. Um, and it's, it's essentially a, a damage limitation exercise to, to leave Labour with either a very slim or no majority um, which would leave them quite unstable and then um, um, they would try and um, um, in opposition try and exploit any 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 um, I suppose disagreements between Labour and the Lib Dems about how to run the country and try and squeeze back in through those gaps. Um, the disaster, the real disaster, and it's quite obvious, I suppose, for the Tory party, would be a huge Labour majority in the next after the next election because they'd be able to go in and do what they want and it's much harder for for the Tories to exploit disagreements within the Labour Party if they've got a huge majority. But what you say is correct, and, and, and I've heard other people say that, that, you know, essentially the Tories, a lot of people suspect, are in some sort of damage limitation mode already, and that's, and that's effectively what they're trying to do. We'll leave it there for now. Listen, Mark, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. And that's it for today. Thanks very much to Jack Horgan-Jones for joining us earlier. Thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. We've got to be back with you very soon indeed, later in the week. Until then, thanks very much for listening.